place tip, but when they hear the jam, jam, they be on the deals, Nick. Now I'm not front and rock, I know the territory. Go ahead and try, that's a different story. Similar to Grim, Grim, I could tell a better one. All about a kid, kid who couldn't rap and didn't run. Stands on the side, where the mic is getting done. Resorts to begging Billy, asking could he have some? No, never ever, ever. Go back and try again, man. If you come back, I'll be the first to shake your hand. Let me flaunt the style. I think that the time's near that we drop studs. There won't be no duds here. Rappers play the dumb. Kinda on the space tip, but when Alright, you guys. Jam, Welcome back to the questions. Another episode of the questions and answers here. You guys uh, tweet me questions. Hashtag SHSQA. SHSQA Scott Horton Show. Questions and answers. And I'll do my best to get to them. And I'll take them by email too. Scott at ScottHorton.org. Um. There's a whole other feed, uh, a couple others that are the same thing, the interviews at libertarianinstitute.org slash scotthortonshow at scotthorton.org slash interviews. For the feed for these uh, questions and answers, you want to go to scotthorton.org slash show, and hopefully all that will be straight for you. Um, all right. So, yeah, it was 14 years ago is when I did my first interview with Alan Bach, right as uh, the regime in Baghdad was falling. and. He was warning about all the next consequences to come so presciently, man. If you guys want to go check that out, 4,400 and something interviews for you there at scotthorton.org slash interviews. In fact, if you hover over it at the top, there's a page that's all interviews. That has all 4,000 of them there for you if you want to go back searching through. Anyway. All right. So I'm sorry it's been so long since I put one of these out. Every time I started recording one, they ended up becoming redundant pretty quick. I don't know if any of you eagle-eyed people saw that I posted the cruise missile. They're preparing the cruise missiles on Twitter, and then I deleted it because I wasn't supposed to know that yet. <laughs> Oops. But anyway, so yeah, I had just finished recording a whole thing about, yeah, it looks like there's going to be strikes either tonight or tomorrow. And then right when I was about to upload it, the strike started. So, ah, well. Start all over again. Uh, too much to talk about here, of course, in the questions and answers today. And you know what? I think I've got everything on my list here to talk about. So um, I'll try to be quick because it's a lot. All right. So this one I think I'm going to put at the end. Let's see. Ron question. Let's end with that. Um, all right. Now we'll end with this. Okay, so um, first of all, obviously Syria. Uh, Danny asked, who's who? Hey, Scott Horton, do I have it right that these are the sides there? And of course, yeah, he was right, but, you know, only kind of because what are you going to do? It's a mess. So here's how I attempted to answer him. Um... Let's see how he asked it. it was Yeah, more or less. All right, I, I summed it up. So here's what I told him. Uh, I emailed him this, but now I'll just tell it to you. It's the USA, Saudi, Qatar, Turkey, Israel, the so-called moderates, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Syrian Kurds on one side. Except that the Turks hate the Kurds. The Kurds fight ISIS. ISIS fights Al-Qaeda, and the USA fights ISIS, but backs Al-Qaeda and the moderates. Really, the moderates who are 
really just the gun runners for al-Qaeda. On the other side of the Syrian war is Syria, Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, and Iraqi Shiite militias. Um, pretty much think I covered that side of it. Um, then, so, uh, in Iraq, though, the USA backs the Kurds, yeah, but they back the Shiite side there, the Shiite Iraqi army, the Iraqi Shiite militias, and also some Iraqi Sunni tribal militias, but pretty much they back uh, Shiite and Kurdish power there uh, in Iraq against the Islamic State, who may or may not still be backed by our friends in Saudi and Qatar, but certainly were bankrolled by the Saudis for a long time, and uh, by the Turks as well, who bought all their oil and let them recruit and let jihadis travel from all over the world to Turkey and then to cross the border into Syria to fight the war there. Um, although the Turks and the Islamic State haven't been getting along so well as of the last year and a half or so um, when the Turks cut ISIS off and ISIS started attacking them. So, is that clear as mud? Uh, you see, this is a real problem because Al-Qaeda, also I left out in my, in my uh, thing here, Al-Qaeda fights the Kurds too. That's where you have CIA-backed Al-Qaeda guys fighting against DOD-backed, and not just outright al-Qaeda, but Arar al-Sham and others, you know, mythical moderate groups who are all really just adjuncts of al-Qaeda anyway. But even the, you know, Arar al-Sham mythical moderates have come, or mythically moderate, I should say, uh, have come into direct battle with the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, that is, the YPG, Syrian Kurds, backed by the Department of Defense, uh, Joint Special Operations Command. And so you've literally had CIA-backed rebels fighting DOD-backed rebels. And then on top of that, there's been the Bada Brigade, an Iraqi Shiite militia from uh, the other front of the ISIS war who have come in to help reinforce Hezbollah and the Syrian Arab army the Iranian uh, special forces guys and the Russians in their fight against the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda both. And now into this. Which side is our government on? Well, at this point, Al-Qaeda is no longer the Islamic State, but the Islamic State is a direct result. It is an outgrowth of American policy in Syria since 2011. And it sounds kind of crazy. It sounds on the level of, a, oh, Obama's a Muslim, and Obama's from Kenya, and all this kind of crap. Because it is high treason. It is high treason. But it's not because he's loyal to the Muslims. It's because he's Ronald Reagan. He was. Um, it's not that he's, you know, on the side. That's, that's how right-wingers uh, think of it. You know, like... Uh, he was a secret agent of Osama who came and usurped John McCain's rightful throne or some kind of thing like that. That's not what it was. Barack Obama, he was a pretty conventional D.C. politician. And right at the time that the Navy SEALs were finally killing Osama bin Laden, the rest of the entire American imperial police state, and imperial regime, was taking their side. And really, uh, go back to The Redirection by Seymour Hersh in The New Yorker magazine. That's from 2007, and it's about a policy that was implemented beginning in 2006. 11 years ago now. 
Bush decided, was advised, that, hey, we blew it. Own goal. We just fought for Iran. We're still in the middle of fighting a civil war for the Iranian-backed factions in Iraq. So that's a big screw-up, and it's really pissed off our allies, the Saudis. So now we need to tilt back toward the Saudis and tilt back toward their Sunni axis. And so that meant backing bin Ladenite groups in Lebanon, uh, Fatah al-Islam it was called, in Lebanon, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, now known as Arar al-Sham, al-Qaeda light, supposedly, not very light, and Jandala, a group of bin Ladenites uh, murdering Iranian uh, military officers and police in uh, Iran. Now, it was the MEK, the Mujahideen cult, communist terrorist cult, who were the ones behind the assassination of um, the uh, scientists. Actually, Jandala may have done a couple of those. And there was a discrepancy about whether they were possibly recruited by the CIA, but that actually it was the Mossad posing as the CIA who had recruited them to do some of these attacks inside Iran, as I believe it was Mark Perry reported back then. But anyway, that's the redirection. Oops, we fought a war. Paul Wolfowitz said, it's all going to work out. It's going to be great. We will own Shiite power in Iraq, and Shiite power in Iraq will dominate Shiite power in Iran, and we'll be in the catbird seat from now on. Well, that's not what happened. They empowered the Iranians. They proceeded to fight a whole civil war to kick all the Sunnis out of the capital city, expand the borders of Shias stand there, and break, basically then break the country up. Only the Americans didn't get control of it. The Iranian-backed factions did and told the Americans to get the hell out. Thanks for winning the war for us. And expanded Shiite power there. Then the King of Jordan said, oh my God, it's the Shiite Crescent. Uh, Tehran, now Baghdad, Damascus, and then does Hezbollah have a capital city? Hezbollah, the mini-state uh, for the Shiite Arabs in southern Lebanon there. Um. This is the Shiite crescent. So now we have to do everything we can to back a bunch of bin Ladenites in order to limit it. That's the doctrine that Obama inherited and then quadrupled. I mean, beyond imagination. It's just impossible. If, if you were Rip Van Winkle and you just woke up after the Obama years and I told you, no, really. I mean, all birther crap aside, he outright took the side of the Al-Qaeda veterans of Iraq War II, Zarqawi's guys from Iraq War II, that where Bush had accidentally given them the entire western half of Iraq and turned it into Jihadistan, um, Obama took their side in their war against Gaddafi and in their war against Assad. Now, they went ahead and followed through with air power and the rest of it and got rid of Gaddafi back in 2009, which just empowered, you know, all kinds of bad actors there, including Al-Qaeda and Islamic State types. Uh, but, I mean, Libya as a state doesn't even exist anymore, which that I'm okay with, but the country doesn't either. Uh, it's just a bunch of warring tribes. It's not like they adopted anarcho-capitalism. They're fighting over who's going to create the new monopoly state, and it's a bloody mess. And America's on all sides of that one, too. But then in Syria, this is the worst of it, where... And you can read this in the New York Times. Bank shot. There's your Google search term. Hillary Clinton, Libya, Syria, bank shot. We'll just take all the jihadis and all the guns from Libya and we'll send them on to Syria. No secret. It was in the Sunday Times. It's all over the place. 
as uh, even Rand Paul pointed out in the Senate. Um, it wasn't a secret to a reporter for the Sunday Times of London at a port in Turkey saying, yeah, a giant ship full of weapons from Libya arrived today and the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups are fighting over who's going to get the guns. And this is way back in 2011. It was in the Observer in, I think, July 2011 that Prince Bandar from Saudi is sending jihadists off to fight in Syria. It was, at the very least, September, but I thought it was even earlier that Eric Margulies reported, yep, just back from France, and I interviewed him about it, just back from France, and there are French special forces and spies on the ground in Syria right now trying to foment crises. That's their old stomping grounds so to speak, and they want it back, he said. They want, you know, they have their imperial interests in trying to gain control of Syria once again. And so it's on from the French point of view. By December 2011, Phil Giraldi reported at Antiwar.com and at the American Conservative Magazine that Obama had signed a new finding authorizing this covert, increased covert action inside Syria and in Iran. And as he explained to Jeffrey Goldberg in... Uh, 2012, the headline at The Atlantic is, as president, I don't bluff, and it's his explaining why he's doing the nuclear deal, etc. But then he explains to Jeffrey Goldberg, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, if we got rid of Assad, then that would be good for taking Iran down a peg. So here he is normalizing relations with Iran de facto by pursuing the nuclear deal, which is taking the largest fake but still largest issue of contention between America and Iran off the table. A huge win for Iran, a huge, rat, a huge ratcheting down of tensions for, Iran, for all of us, which, you know, I support the deal and you should too. It's a great deal. I mean, Iran, it, they never were making bombs. Now they're extra double proving it and America's backing off their war threats. There's nothing to complain about there at all. Even the money they got was their money that Uncle Sam stole. You probably know what that feels like. Anyway, um, <laughs> I know I do. Um, so, yeah, um, the thing of it is that uh, from 2000, by the end of 2011, at least the very beginning of 2012, it was reported in major papers. It was the State Department admitting it, told McClatchy newspapers that, yeah, you know, looks like the dominant force on the ground in this Syria war is the al-Nusra Front, which is just another name for al-Qaeda in Iraq. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group, the worst part of the Sunni-based insurgency during Iraq War II. Butchers of women and children. Uh, sworn loyal to Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And then this went on for years, and this is hardly secret. I mean, if you're on Twitter and you're interested... If you want to check my archives, going back to 2011, 12, 13, this whole time. We've been covering it this whole time. Hell, I interviewed Seymour Hirsch back in 2007 when he wrote The Redirection. So, just because I can't think of another different, better job to do uh, than cover foreign policy for you guys, I've covered this all along. I've seen it coming all along just because I've been covering it all along. It's because I haven't switched to do anything else. It's all right there for you. You can go back and just search Syria by year. On, uh, on the website. It's all there for you if you want. And, uh, and so now here we are. We got finally got... Now, Obama never went through with it, right? He could have bombed Damascus. He could have killed Assad uh, and overthrown the country there. 
but he didn't want to go down as the guy who not only created the Islamic State. Oh, see, I skipped off. I was on a narrative about the Islamic State there. Remind me, me, to get back to Obama and chickening out in a second. The Islamic State in 2003, pardon me, 2013, broke off from al-Nusra. And al-Nusra basically just means the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq fighting in Syria. And ISIS, the Islamic State, or it was then the Islamic State of Iraq, um, and then later the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, they were the Iraqi-dominated faction more than anything else. And there was a split after bin Laden died. There's a lesson here about decapitation strikes and all that. Gotta kill bin Laden, right? But once they killed bin Laden, Baghdadi stopped obeying Ayman al-Zawahiri. And to American uh, you know, imperial interest, uh, great detriment, certainly to the great detriment of many people in Iraq and Syria. And Baghdadi still claims Osama bin Laden and his legacy but he told Zawahiri, forget you. I don't, you. You can't tell me what to do from hiding in your basement in Pakistan, old man. I'm creating my caliphate now. And he broke off in 2013. Six months later, his men seized Fallujah. And six months after that, they rolled into Mosul. And uh, very shortly thereafter, Tikrit and Ramadi and consolidated control over all of western Iraq. And yes, there is a very famous DIA document that was released by Judicial Watch and analyzed uh, the very best by Brad Hoff at LevantReport.com predicting all of this. And Mike Flynn, the now disgraced uh, first um, national security advisor for Donald Trump and formerly uh, Stanley McChrystal's right-hand man in the Afghan surge, uh, after, leave, he, he, after the Afghan surge, he became the head of the DIA and was the head of the DIA during this era that's the Defense Intelligence Agency, during this the earlier era of the Syrian war here. And he later confirmed to Mehdi Hassan of Al Jazeera that, yes, it was a deliberate policy to go ahead and let these jihadi groups get built up. And in fact, uh, John Kerry, there was recently released audio where John Kerry, the New York Times originally published it but had edited it. Then the full version came out. And the original, the, the edited was bad enough where he's talking about all the guns and sorry it wasn't enough to help you rebels overthrow Assad, but look at all the weapons we did give you in all of this. But, um, and he told them in regards to the Islamic State, well, we thought we could manage, which his language isn't perfectly clear. He's speaking out loud, not writing it down. But it sounds like what he's saying is, we thought we could manage the situation, even including with the rise of ISIS, because it was putting pressure on Assad. And yet, of course, the problem with that is, as John Kerry, the former Obama Secretary of State, admitted, well, the Iranians and the Russians reacted, and they backed Assad. So it's not a zero-sum game. The more you back the jihadis, the more Hezbollah comes in to help Assad fight them. And up and up it goes. And so he says, it's not that there's a lack of weapons. We dumped an ungodly amount of weapons in there. It's just that the other side gets them too. And the thing just, it's not working. But he basically concedes there that, well, we thought we could manage. As Obama had put it, and this you have to understand without being any of us being able to be a fly on the room. When Obama made the comment after the fall of Fallujah that still ISIS is just junior varsity. They're just pipsqueaks. Don't worry about them. That reflects a conversation or a set of conversations and decisions that were made in the White House, that this is how we're choosing to consider this. Not that big of a deal yet. 
because, again, as Obama told Goldberg, this will help take Iran down a peg. And, you know, really, as he's, again, making de facto peace with Iran, he's basically doing this apparently to placate the Saudis uh, and to placate the Israelis. And you're probably familiar with that phrase, placate the Saudis, because that was also Obama's excuse for helping them launch this war against Yemen that's been raging for two years now, that he was about to sign this nuclear deal with Iran, and the Saudis were freaking out about it, and so to placate the Saudis. That's the direct quote from the New York Times, and that's no scoop. That was an official story passed down from the Oval Office to the paper of record. Okay, That was their story that they wanted told. Well, Yemen, yeah, we had to do it because we're trying to placate the Saudis. In fact, that paragraph ends with, in spite of the fact that they knew that it would be indecisive, which is a very nice way of saying they launched a war they knew they could not win just to make a so-called ally feel better. And so, quite apparently, that was what was going on in Syria, too. And... uh you know, the Israelis play a big role in this. They have a huge problem with Syria. This goes back to the clean break, of course, and coping with crumbling states by David Wormser, who was Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor, that, of course, Syria helps Iran back Hezbollah. And that's all you need to know, man. They got to go. We must expedite the chaotic collapse in Syria, Wormser wrote. It never occur to you that the movie Revenge of the Nerds, that they got the names for Poindexter and Wormser from the Reagan administration? That's occurred to me. It's a great movie. Anyway, uh, yeah, and this guy Wormser's an idiot. Uh, I'm always trying to tell you, read Dan Sanchez's great reviews. Um, expediting the chaos. No, that isn't it. <laughs> anyway, search Dan Sanchez and David Wormser. You'll find it. Wormser. Uh, you'll find it. And anyway, um, so as Michael Oren, Netanyahu's ambassador, his previous ambassador, just one ambassador ago, uh, to the United States, who himself is in fact an American, he explained to Jeffrey Goldberg, well, first he told the Jerusalem Post that, yes, we prefer these bad guys to those bad guys. And we have always wanted rid of Assad. And these bad guys means the jihadists. The Bin Ladenites to those bad guys because they are backed by Iran, as he explained. And the same thing happened again. In fact, I'll go ahead and I think I have the clip here for you. Um, I can pull it up, can't I? Um, as Oren explained to Jeffrey Goldberg. I won't speak for the government anymore. I'm speaking for me and Jeff. No, you're not. <laughs> and what I'm going to say is, is, is harsh, and perhaps a little edgy. But if we have to choose the lesser of evils here, the lesser evil is the Sunnis over the Shiites. For the reason you're I not speaking before. for me. Okay, it's a lesser evil. It's an evil, believe me, it's a terrible evil. Again, they've just taken out 1,700 former Iraqi soldiers and shot them in a field. But who are, they, who are they fighting against? They're fighting against the, against the proxy with Iran that's complicit in the murder of 160,000 people in Syria. You can just you know, do the math. And again, one side is armed with suicide bombers and rockets. The other side has access to military nuclear capabilities. 
So from Israel's perspective, um, you know, if someone's got, if, if, if there's got to be an evil that's going to prevail, you know, let, let the, the Sunni evil prevail. And I, right. again, so you see there, he did start out to say, the volume was a bit low, but he did start out saying, I'm only speaking for myself, not for Israel, but that's not true. And he slips a couple of times. So from Israel's perspective, and he's speaking, of course, for the Netanyahu administration. And then, of course, his reasons are both completely bogus, that every casualty of the war is Assad's fault and that Iran has nuclear weapons and could give them to Assad and or Hezbollah, which is just not true in any way. And by the way, that clip where he refers to, look, they just massacred however many hundred, 1,700 Iraqis in the field. Well, they were the Iraqi Shiites. Who were they? They were cadets at the Iraqi Air Force Academy who were slaughtered by the Islamic State. So there's no spin here that, well, he was only talking about the mythical moderates. No, he wasn't even talking about Al-Qaeda. He was referring to ISIS. Oh, look, these guys. Yeah, they just slaughtered a bunch of guys. Innocent people. I don't know if you guys have seen that footage of basically a parking lot full of bound men just being completely machine gunned to death by the Islamic State. Yeah, yeah, they did that. But hey, on the other side is Hezbollah. Yeah, well, Hezbollah isn't sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. Oh, no, I guess ISIS isn't either. Only uh, the al-Nusra front that we're still back in there. Um, but still, Baghdadi claims Osama, so that's bad enough. That must have been what I meant to say. All right. Um, now the gas attack. Um, so that's the context of, of what's going on in this war. Oh, no, I was supposed to get back to Obama. So Obama never all the way, uh, you know, went for the full regime change. He backed down in 2013. And... He basically stuck with the policy, as the Israelis themselves later put it in the New York Times, to let, hem let both sides continue to hemorrhage to death. We really don't want the, the Sunni or the Shiite side to win, to, as, as they frame it. Um, just let them keep fighting and fighting. Apparently, Obama adopted that policy. But so now that we're in the Trump administration, the question is whether they're going to go ahead and go through with regime change. You can see a big problem, and we're going to get back to this later. A big problem here is that nobody ever explains who's who. And especially have among the right-wing hawks this term radical Islam, which completely papers over the fact that there's a massive sectarian war going on. Not that they're fighting over you need to convert your religion, although there's a bit of that from the Islamic State types. What they're fighting over is who's who, who's the in-group, who's the out-group. Who wins, who loses. They're fighting over land and power, control of resources. You know, a funny fact about Iraq, kids, is that all the oil is up in the north near Kirkuk under the control of the Kurds or down in the south near Basra under the control of the Shiites. And back when the minority Sunni government under Saddam Hussein ruled from Baghdad, didn't matter. They stole it all. Everybody else only got what was divvied up and uh, passed out to them on the receiving end, right? But ever since the war in 2003, the Shiites and the Kurds have had the attitude that, well, we don't have to share with you guys anymore. Why would we? And especially that's been the Shiite attitude. And the Sunni attitude is, holy crap, if we don't control the government, we don't have the oil revenue. 
And that's the life they've been living, and that's a huge part of why they fight. They've basically just been left to burn out in the sun with no resources at all. In fact, uh, I saw McTodd Al-Sadr today has called for Assad to resign. McTodd Al-Sadr, who is always the least Iranian-tied of the Iraqi uh, Shiite leaders, who always complained that the Iranian-backed factions that America supported wanted to split Iraq up and create this strong federal system. Um, but, of course, there's really nothing for the Shiites to gain from ruling over the Sunnis. They can just cut them loose, which is basically what the Nuri al-Maliki policy was. As I said, Western Iraq was an ungoverned space, easy place for the Islamic State. Oh, did I say that? I was talking to somebody else on the phone earlier. Oh, no. See, this is a different point I'm about to answer. Um Western Iraq was an ungoverned space, and so they were able to just roll right in there. And this goes to one of the questions that the guy asked was, did Assad, is it true that Assad is responsible for ISIS because he let all the prisoners out and all that thing? Well, the protesters were demanding that Assad let all the prisoners out. Then he let them out, and everybody goes, oh, no. See, you only let them out so that it would look bad that it's a bunch of jihadists fighting you. Well, that's who, was, that's who the opposition prisoners were, or a bunch of terrorists. And then... People say there's this whole conspiracy theory, you know, a Lindsey Graham type one, that, uh, yeah, well, everybody knows Assad is behind ISIS after all anyway, because ISIS fights against Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda are our heroes against Assad, so they must be working for him. And yet, that's not what's going on there. That's a fraternal brothers killing each other kind of thing there, over who's the true inheritor of Osama's legacy, as far as that goes. And then as far as their claims that, oh, ISIS doesn't fight Assad, and Assad doesn't fight ISIS. Well, that's just a lie. You can find all kinds of battles here, there, and all over the place through the years, including two different, three different wars over the city of Palmyra, and where it's admitted, New York Times, Washington Post, no problem, that they're happy to say that, yes, the Americans stood back and let they had planes in the air right there, and they stood back and watched as ISIS rolled into Palmyra twice at least they admitted it once and didn't hit them and they said why because that would have benefited Assad they were perfectly happy to let ISIS score points as long as it was against Assad in their own damn words and of course remember last fall when Obama and Kerry tried to cut a deal with the Russians okay let's work together to bomb ISIS what happened the Pentagon bombed Syrian army a Syrian army position and helped ISIS take that army base, actually, for a day or two before they got ran off again. And then along with the quite disputed convoy attack, uh, that was the end of the deal that Kerry had struck. Looked like deliberate insubordination on the part of the Pentagon to destroy that deal. And there it was. It was they were directly intervening in a fight between Assad and ISIS. Now, there's a little bit of a kernel of a truth that you can base a lie off of if you want. If you want to say that, look, well, ISIS was more determined to seize and control territory in eastern Syria and then move into western Iraq rather than fighting for Damascus. But that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that he's a friend of Assad. That just means that what's easier, taking Damascus from Assad or taking Mosul from Maliki? Mosul from Maliki, dum-dum, especially when these guys are the Iraqi-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. 
Now, I do have an advantage here because I have this show and I keep doing it. So a year before Mosul fell, I interviewed Andrew, uh, pardon me, Patrick Coburn on this show. And he said, yeah, hey, guess what? Iraqi Shiite soldiers from the Iraqi army, they're pulling back from Mosul. Most of them are ghost soldiers anyway, just payroll padding uh, type uh, uh, pretend to soldiers in the first place. But the ones who do exist, they're pulling back behind Shiite lines. They don't feel safe up there in Mosul. They're like in a foreign country. They're occupying Fort Apache up there, and they don't feel like they have the support in order to hold the place down. So they're retreating. It was six months later that Fallujah raised the black flag. And it was so clear. And that was why, if you go back and check my archives, the entire first six months of 2014, I'm freaking out about, man, the rise of the Islamic State. And Western Iraq is wide open. They're going to roll right in there. The idea that the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq would decide that they would rather seize power in Western Iraq than die trying to seize Damascus from Assad is just that that somehow means that they work for Assad and that this is all his diabolical plan. That's a bunch of nonsense. It's completely ridiculous. You might as well bring Putin into it at that point. Oh, no. Putin was brought in in the fall of 2015 when American support for al-Qaeda was such that they were able to cut the last highway between Aleppo and Damascus. And only then, in 2015, the fall of 2015, only then did Putin come in with his air force and start hitting the al-Qaeda positions and starting the most uh, recent of the conflict. I'm not saying that's great or whatever. I'm just saying get the narrative right about who was doing what. And I guess he had been... He'd been helping Assad with some material support, etc. But, uh, yeah. Uh, as far as, I, I was just cracking a joke about uh, the, the ridiculous conspiracy theory that Assad is behind the Islamic State. It's only if you're determined to believe that Al-Qaeda are the good guys, and if only they would overthrow Assad, then everything would be fine. But you'd have to have one hell of an agenda to believe that at this point, for sure. All right. Now, oh, and I'm sorry, man, I meant to say during the Israel part, that Asa Wynn Stanley, who is a British journalist, I think has done the best job of compiling all the different evidences, very mainstream ones, of Israeli support, direct support for al-Nusra, aid and comfort for the al-Nusra front, which is, again, al-Qaeda in Syria. And now some people say, even good writers, I see them make this mistake and say, well, they changed their name and they renounced their ties to al-Qaeda. That's not true. They did not renounce their ties to Al-Qaeda. They just changed their name. If you go back and look, at no point did Jelani say that, yeah, now my sacred oath of bayat, as they call it, to Ayman al-Zawahiri is hereby canceled. There's nothing like that in there. These guys are sworn. Jelani is the leader of the al-Nusra Front or Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, and now they've changed the name again, Tahrir, something, whatever. They are, as long as Jelani's their boss, they are Ayman al-Zawahiri's men. Hiding in a basement in Pakistan, as he may be. And Asa Wynn Stanley has put together an incredible uh, amount of documentary evidence of Israeli support for them, and you know, medical treatment and all of this. I think there's even a question of whether some of these airstrikes uh, against Hezbollah has been as actual air cover for al-Qaeda fighters in Syria. 
Now, it's hard to parse the so-called FSA groups and whatever, but you look at the moderates. This is another thing somebody asked me. I know I'm getting these out of order. Oh, it's the same guy asked. See a moderate rebel literally eating a guy's heart out. That's right. That guy was from the Al-Farouk Brigade, who were known as moderates. They want elections. They don't want a bin Ladenite Islamist state. We promise. And it was their leader who was on film eating the guy's heart or liver or lungs or whatever. I guess anatomists were arguing over which organ he was devouring in that footage. He thought it was the soldier's heart anyway. And then there was the Northern Storm Brigade that John McCain went and met with. But then it turned out they had kidnapped a bunch of pilgrims from Lebanon and it had sold them to ISIS. And then guess what? They had kidnapped and sold Stephen Sotloff to ISIS. And they ended up cutting his head off. That's where they got him from, was from John McCain's group, the Northern Storm Brigade. You may have seen that picture where he's standing on the front porch with those guys, and some of them quite inaccurately label one of the guys on the porch as Baghdadi himself. It's not him. It's somebody else. But same damn difference. There was a video interview by Time Magazine with the leader of the Northern Storm Brigade before McCain ever went and met with him where he said, yeah, I'm a veteran of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Yeah, I went and fought against the Americans there with Zarqawi and them. These are the moderates. The moderates who, over these years, come and go. They basically are just the equipment and financial supply arm of Al-Qaeda. That's all they are. They get training by American forces in Jordan, and then they go join the Islamic State. Go join, go join Al-Qaeda. And take their boots and their gun with them. And their training. You know, the mythical moderates, they get all the tow missiles. And then the next thing you know, there's YouTubes of Al-Qaeda fighters shooting American tow missiles. At this secular fascist dictatorship. Which, as horrible as it is, their leader gets up and shaves his chin in the morning. Uh, you know, people keep saying, if only he was gone... But yeah, if only he was gone, then Al-Qaeda would rule Damascus or there'd be a whole new fight for it. If the Ba'athist regime was gone, I mean, why is the Ba'athist regime even standing? Well, because at least a plurality, if not a majority of Sunnis support it. And all the Alawites and all the Shiites and all of the different kinds of Christians, and there's three or four different kinds of ancient classes of Christians going back 2,000 years to the original, and there's one village left where they speak Aramaic. Uh, all of these groups support the regime, not because they're nice guys, but because the opposition are a bunch of head-chopping lunatics. The opposition, they say Al-Qaeda, oh no, they're not as bad as ISIS. Really? Look at them massacring innocent people for being a member of the wrong sect or for simply being in their way. Detonating suicide bombs outside of schools, shooting a little boy in the head for not even taking Muhammad's name in vain. It was like the slightest thing. Remember that one? The guy said, hey, give me a deal, kid, on this pear you're trying to sell me at your fruit stand. And the kid said, hey, I'm sorry, no deals. The price is the price. I wouldn't even give a deal to Muhammad. Al-Nusra guy walks up, shoots the boy in the head. He's 14 years old or something. That's who the moderates have been really all along in this thing. And the people of Syria know that. 
And they try so hard to spin it like all the Sunnis, which the majority of the population of the country are Sunni Arabs. And they try to make it sound like, oh, it's the Alawite minority oppressing the Sunni majority. No, that's not true. Every other minority group supports the state and at least a plurality, if not a majority, outright of the Sunnis do too. And even the Kurds, who have created their own little mini-state and broken away, they have been very specific to say they don't want any fight with Assad. They don't want to see him overthrown. They don't prefer al-Qaeda to him. Again, DOD-backed Kurds in Syria have been fighting against CIA-backed terrorists, uh, you know, jihadist types. So I don't know whether they'll ever be able to come together and have some kind of federation in the future or whether there's going to be a whole new war over... Uh, seems like there, it's more likely there would be a Turkish war against Syrian Kurdistan than a, a Baathist, uh, Damascus-based one, but we're talking about next year, right? Um, okay, and then now the gas attack. I don't know what happened. I really don't. But what I read about it, I don't believe the story that they're pushing. That this one bomb went off and spread this cloud over this whole village and all of this. I just don't believe it. And show me that. And clearly these people are dying from something. Whether it's sarin or not, I don't know. The Doctors Without Borders and the WHO said, yeah, they're dying of something that seems to be some kind of nerve agent or something. But they weren't being too specific. They didn't say sarin and they certainly didn't say who did it. And their story is not credible to me. Now, um, you might have seen or heard that I interviewed Phil Giraldi and that he has sources who were saying that they are in agreement with the Russian story. That what happened was um, not that he, it was Sarin necessarily, but that the Assad government had bombed a warehouse full of weapons that included some chemicals, possibly chlorine or who knows what else, and that then that smoke got out and may have killed some of the people. But they show a crater in the road, kind of out in the middle of this sort of farm, industrial section of town, where there's no reason to believe that anybody had been standing around where that bomb had fallen. And just one small bomb, maybe a 250 or 500 pound bomb or something, I guess less than that, had hit in the middle of the street. And then um, in this kind of agricultural thing, I don't know, it was a very windless day or just, just enough of a breeze to create a giant cloud over the whole village, as they claim, and then disperse. Eh, you know, I don't know. Uh, the bomb in the warehouse story sounds more credible to me. And actually, even more credible to that is just my imagination that Al-Nusra just poisoned these people. And that, it, you know, they just took advantage of an airstrike to say that it was related at all. That, to me, sounds like the most plausible explanation. But I don't know. But I don't believe them. And I don't think that you need to feel like you go. You should go ahead and default with and believe whatever TV says until you hear otherwise. Because, in fact, you should feel exactly the opposite. And I know even smart people are going, well, Assad must have done it, right? People are saying that to me. I mean, that's what they're saying. Come on, man. We've been through this. We've been through this specifically three and a half years ago. And it was a hoax. There was some nerve gas. In fact, sarin. But it was the Turks and Al-Qaeda that did it. And Seymour Hersh's reporting stands up. And I know he took a lot of flack, but from a bunch of monkeys. 
and he smashed them all. And because what happened was the rocket propulsion department at MIT came to his defense and said, all these amateurs with their half-baked theories about this, that, and the other thing, wrong. Hirsch is right. You're wrong. And the accusers had to keep changing their story about where these rockets must have come from. Oh, they came from this base nine kilometers away. Oh, really, huh? In a, a rocket that couldn't possibly have traveled that far. Anyway, you can read about it at um, the London Review of Books. Seymour Hersh, The Red Line and the Rat Line. And then also, Who's Saren is the follow-up. And then you can read all the letters to the editor from the guys at MIT saying that the naysayers have no idea what they're talking about. And it was a hoax. That's it. In fact, Phil Giraldi reported at the time then that the CIA analysts were prepared to resign en masse. And that is not just his claim, but here's what backs that up is that they put out a government assessment, which is not a thing. A CIA assessment an intelligence assessment, an assessment by the director of national intelligence's office or by the DIA or whatever would have their name on it. A government assessment means political people wrote it in the White House because the CIA refused to allow their name to be put on it and they were going to resign over it. And now we know because, again, it was Jeffrey Goldberg. One year ago, Obama's exit interview with Jeffrey Goldberg and... The article begins by saying, oh, yeah, Saad gassed his people and all this. But then halfway down the article, it says that the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, interrupted Barack Obama's morning briefing with the CIA one morning to say, hey, this intelligence about Assad and the sarin attack is not a slam dunk. Which is a reference to Tenet's promise to George Bush that the Iraqi WMD intel was a slam dunk. And in other words, he was telling Obama, I won't stand by you on this. And then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dempsey, told the media, I don't know why we have to attack Syria right now. Which was, again, another indication. I won't stand by you, Mr. President, if you launch this war. And, or in other words, they were being nice and they were providing him political cover. Hey, I don't think we should do this either. If you need to cite me, cite me. And they backed down from doing it. It wasn't true. And in fact, of course, there were other reasons that they didn't do it too. But that was a big one. Is that it, that Clapper told Obama, I'm not willing to lie for you on this. Right? That's what he was telling Obama. If anybody asks me, I'm telling them that I told you that it's not a slam dunk, Mr. President. That's what he's really saying. So that's not 100% proof of what happened this time, but it sure is a hell of a lot of reason to doubt until you find better evidence. Now, there's a picture in The Guardian of a pretty much empty-looking warehouse, and the guy says, oh, yeah, right, this is the warehouse that supposedly was full of all these chemicals or whatever. But, yeah, says you. I don't know who this Guardian reporter is, and I don't know which Al-Qaeda guys are leading him around by the nose or what. But um, I highly recommend that you guys look at Kevin Gotstola at Shadowproof. He's got a great piece. We're running it on antiwar.com today or tomorrow. Tomorrow um, on antiwar.com on Monday. It'll be running. And it's uh, how do we know that Assad did the sarin attack? And he brings up a lot of great points. We already ran one the other day that was at, uh, by Vijay Prashad at Alternet, uh, bringing up the fact that everything we're learning here about this attack is coming from these opposition activists. 
not one of them is an objective source, etc. And uh, that was a good one. Vijay Prashad, he's a, a good writer and, and was good on opposing the war in Libya. And I think he's the one that wrote the, I think he wrote a book, one of the two books I have about the Libya war that I haven't read yet. Anyway, decent guy, Prashad. Um, and then, so there's the strikes. And then the question of regime change. And now Nikki Haley at the UN and McMaster keeps saying, um, uh, no, no, pardon me, Rex Tillerson keeps saying that he's got to go. And they do send mixed signals. Uh, Tillerson said, uh, well, you know, we got to get rid of ISIS first. They're the priority, but then... And then McMaster said, no, we're going to do it simultaneously. Or some, was it McMaster, I think? Anyway. Um, and by the way, there's a new story out saying that McMaster wants to do a full Petraeus surge of 175,000 troops into Syria to do a full counterinsurgency doctrine and all of this. And yeah, I don't believe that. Because I think McMaster knows that uh, that would be way too dangerous in terms of the relationship with Russia. And he's a Russia hawk, but he ain't that bad. There's just too much at stake for them to try that here. And I guess it's true that they do have the myth of the surge. And it is absolutely true that, in fact, General Mattis... In fact, the story says Mattis is against it. But really, Mattis helped rewrite the counterinsurgency doctrine with Petraeus. McMaster was you know, part of that group with Petraeus. Of course, Mattis is a Marine, Um so he was never directly under Petraeus. Oh, I guess he was when Petraeus was the head of CENTCOM. But still, they're not in the same branch. He was never his direct underling in the way that McMaster was. McMaster was under McChrystal and Petraeus during the surge in Afghanistan in charge of fighting corruption in Kabul. Did you know that? There must be some funny stories there, dude. But anyway, um, I, I doubt that they're going to take that risk Um with putting that many infantry on the ground. The lesson of Iraq War II is, as Eric Margulies emphasizes, you go back to the British model, white officers with native troops. And I could even see them putting in 50,000 Marines to knock the hell out of ISIS and then leave again. But get bogged down in the counterinsurgency, stand around and get sniped, get blown up by an ID, IED, just driving around in circles all day playing the IED lottery and all that. I think the Army and the Marine Corps have had their fill of that for now. I don't think they're going to want to do that. So I don't know. But what's interesting is the story comes from uh, Mike Cernovich, and the, the one part of it that I found actually really intriguing, and he could be right about the coin thing, I don't know, man. It is the worst thing imaginable, so why not? But the thing I found most intriguing about it was that he said that, hey, uh, Kushner and Bannon are in agreement about this. They don't want to do it. And in fact, he says Mattis agrees with them and doesn't want to do it. It's McMaster and his guys that want to. But I thought that was especially interesting because that coincided with something that Robert Perry reported, that contrary to popular rumor going around, Bannon and Kushner agree on not attacking Assad in Syria. And they were against the strikes, never mind something this big but just that they were against the cruise missile strikes. And although Perry's thing had an additional part of it that sounded a bit unbelievable to me, and that was that Bannon and Kushner had encouraged Trump to tell the American people that the last time they tried this in 2013, it was a hoax, and that there's reason to doubt the intelligence now, and therefore I'm not going forward. 
and that he refused to go along with that advice. Now, on the one hand, that's what I would have told him. And on the other hand, man, that's what I would have really wanted Bannon and Kushner to tell him. But on the other hand, eh, I'm using my imagination in my mind's eye kind of thing, and I'm really not picturing it happening that way, boys. I don't know. But that doesn't sound right to me. That that Bannon or Kushner would recommend picking that fight, opening that can of worms. You know what I mean? Just say, eh, the intelligence is still sketchy and we're waiting. You don't have to cite the last time. Leave that to Scott Horton and all that, right? You don't have that. You wouldn't have President Trump say that, even if you were Bannon or Kushner kind of thing, right? Or you would, but they wouldn't. So I don't know. But it's interesting to me, uh, the so-called splits there. I mean, anybody who's not stupid and crazy ought to be against overthrowing the Baathist regime at this point. And they're saying, oh, yeah, no, well, maybe we'll just get rid of him and, uh, and keep the current regime. But I don't know that that's possible. I don't know. Okay. Um, what else am I missing? Uh, oh, I should say, yes, it's true he barrel bombs his own people, if that's the way you put it. What's not true is that, oh yeah, Assad just wakes up in the morning to slaughter Syrians for fun. What he does is he attacks positions that are controlled by his enemies. And yeah, there's a lot of collateral damage. The idea that a dumb bomb is itself a war crime because it's not a laser and satellite-guided JDAM is kind of unfair and biased toward the super state. Don't you think? Um, America drops five and thousand, 500 and 1,000 pound bombs on people all day long every day. But a barrel bomb is a unique evil. We use cluster bombs and white phosphorus. But a barrel bomb is a unique evil. Of course it's an evil. I'm not disputing the evil part. I'm disputing the unique part. And again, who put him in this position at all? This war would have been over in 2011 before it started if America and its allies, which all had approval from America, had not intervened on the side of the terrorists in this thing. So, not that that justifies it necessarily, although, hey, what are you going to do if Al-Qaeda is about to overrun your capital city? you got to fight them somehow. Um, but And you know what? I shouldn't give the guy any credit. It, it may very well be that they have had a tactic of terrorizing people in areas that are deemed to support the Islamic or, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and their other allies and affiliates and, and what have you um, by attacking civilian targets deliberately. I know they've attacked hospitals and that kind of thing, uh, which... You could see why the Americans spin them as military targets. Sometimes we attack hospitals in Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq, and we go, oh, well, there are bad guys there. So that's their same rationalization that they use as the American one. So, yeah, again, is it a fascist dictatorship in the middle of a brutal civil war? Yeah. Numbers approaching the dead from our civil war? Yeah, getting there. You know, who knows? Um... And then now, uh, oh, I'm glad that I, I uh, saved this guy's email to glance at because he has so many different questions about it. One of them is, what about these other chemical attacks? And I have here this New York Times article for you. If I can click on the damn thing. 
ISIS used chemical arms at least 52 times in Syria and Iraq, report says. And I'm sorry because I can't remember. It was at Consortium News, but there's been so much good stuff on ConsortiumNews.com lately. I, I can't keep it straight off the top of my head. It was either, I think it was either James Carden or Robert Perry who pointed out that all the investigation, there was a UN investigation that blamed Assad for some of the chemical attacks. And yet, the only one that they said that they could prove with any evidence at all, where they had testimony of people who said that they saw it and all that, that later it was proven that those people were lying, were being made to lie. And so they had to back down from that. But that was the one that they cited to confirm the other two that, well, since this one seems right, then the other two are probably right. But there was no evidence for the other two. They were just stories that had been told. And so the one that backed up the two had fallen itself. So there's zero for three. That kind of thing. You'd have to go back and look at consortiumnews.com. I'm pretty sure it was Robert Perry's piece where he talked about that. If you search there for UN, Syria, and chemical, what have you, you'll find it. And, you know, again, it's a fascist dictatorship in the middle of a war. Um, I would not be absolutely shocked if they had used chlorine gas here, there, or somewhere else. Uh, other than it's really bad public relations and is seemingly unnecessary. And you could say it's good public relations inside Syria that, boy, you better run because we're using chlorine now or something. Like, okay, that kind of makes sense in a vacuum. But when you look at the cost, in terms of the international community and the allegations that he's outright committing war crimes and using poison gas on civilians, doesn't seem to add up to me. Not that that's the final refutation or anything, but sure is reason to be skeptical. And then again, especially when the official newspaper record, in other words, against interest, concedes that it's Assad's enemies that use chemical weapons. At least 52 times is the headline from November 21st, 2016 here. Eric Schmidt, ISIS used chemical arms at least 52 times in Syria and Iraq. So, I think I'm done with Syria now, guys. What else is on this list? Oh, no, I'm not done with Syria. So the point is, if Assad falls, yeah, I did, I did say that. Al-Qaeda comes to power, and a lot more people die. That would just be the beginning of a whole new set of horrors there. Um, I don't know. All right, covered that, that, that. Um, now, someone asked me, hey, what's just the best single argument to bring up when people say, oh, we got to stop Assad and save the people there? And the, the single best argument to use there, just, you know, my advice, is if the Assad government falls, al-Qaeda will take Damascus. And short of that, when Assad's state and his military in this war are weakened, al-Qaeda and ISIS are the victors. So ask your interlocutor how it was that someone convinced them that Assad was their enemy, but men sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri are not. Or is it that they just watch TV and regurgitate what they're told and they have no idea that there's even such a thing as al-Qaeda in Syria at all and that that's whose side America's on? And... By the way, they do attack uh, Syrian al-Qaeda targets sometimes, too, but not very much. Mostly they just back them. All right. Um, 
And then, okay, so somebody asked me about a counterinsurgency and, and why is counterinsurgency worse than um, any other dumb doctrine? And here I'm going to quote Basevich from last week, actually, on my show. I put the, I ended up putting the quote in my book here. Um, so here's what he told me just last week. We've done counterinsurgency. We've done counterterrorism. We've done advise and assist. We've done targeted assassination. We've done nation building. We have run the gamut of approaches in terms of tactics and methods, and none of them have yielded the success the proponents have argued that we would achieve. So you come back to that basic question. Maybe the entire enterprise is misguided. Uh, retired U.S. Army Colonel Andrew Basevich there. Now, um, really, the only thing... I guess, quote-unquote, worse about counterinsurgency is it just means more men, therefore more fighting. Instead of adopting an absolutely horrific and counterproductive uh, counter, uh, no, uh, anti-insurgency campaign, as Mike Flynn deridingly called it, an anti-insurgency campaign. We just go around trying to kill people you can do that with a smaller footprint. You do nothing but create more enemies that way, as Flynn and McChrystal and Petraeus and every one of these guys will agree, but then continue to do it anyway. But Flynn says, if you just go around hunting and killing bad guys, that's stupid, pathetic, old think. That's anti-insurgency. That's not going to get you anywhere. What you need is counterinsurgency, which means you send in so much infantry that the ratio of grunts to civilians in the country that you're occupying becomes so vast that the resistance just quits the field and the regular, normal, everyday people turn to the occupation to be their government, their police, their protectors and separate them from those among them who would have attempted to resist. Of course, the whole thing is stupid. The whole thing is magical thinking. And it's all based on a pretended pseudo-counterinsurgency campaign in Malaya that was actually just a brutal ethnic cleansing campaign. The minority was trying to foist communism on the majority. The majority sided with the Brits in putting the communist revolution down. And they were just massacred and ethnically cleansed. There's no... Uh, you know, we oppressed them until they fell in love with us and respected us and did what we said and quit resisting. That didn't happen. It had nothing to do. There was no hearts and minds campaign. There was no nation building campaign. They just annihilated the opposition. That's all. So that's not a counterinsurgency campaign, but they cite it like it was one just because they're, for a time the Brits called it that. And then at the end, the insurgency was over. And so, haha, the surge worked, boys. But let's not look at what the actual result was. And then Algeria, where the French lost. And then Vietnam, where the French and the Americans lost. And then Iraq, where the Americans lost. Or they fought the war for the winning majority side in kind of a repeat of the Malaya thing. They just completed the sectarian cleansing of the minority. And then the majority told them to get the hell out. And no, you can't have a single permanent base. You wanted 56, you get zero. Beat it, Maliki told Bush. So what's a victory there? Other than they got a million people killed and accomplished 
the increase of Iranian power in Iraqi Shiistan by 10 million times in control of the capital city. And they turned the west of the country into Jihadistan, into Bin Laden University. Yeah, that's a great counterinsurgency victory. I know we should base our, our Afghanistan policy on Algeria and Vietnam and Iraq. Come on, let's double down. And then what happened in Afghanistan? All they did was just get a lot more people killed. Out of the 2,500-something dead Americans, three-fourths of them were killed during the Obama years fighting the Afghan surge for nothing. Winning absolutely nothing, make, making no gains whatsoever. They called them fragile and reversible gains. That means they weren't gains at all. That just means if you drop a large force of highly financed and well-equipped Western infantry on the ground, yeah, the guerrillas will run away. That doesn't mean you beat them. It just means that they're waiting you out. All they have to do is not lose, et cetera, et cetera. I shouldn't tell you my whole book, but there you go. That's my whole book. The surge in Afghanistan, what a waste. So, anti-insurgency is just killing people for nothing. And counter-insurgency is just killing even more people for nothing. That's the answer to your question, Mr. Email, sir. Okay. And then, um, well, let me just say, this guy Justin asked, hey, what's a, what's a good book for a new guy to read? Read Basevich's new one. It's called America's War for the Greater Middle East. Now, I don't know any other good overall books to tell you off the top of my head. There are a lot of great ones if you want to be more specific on your subject matter. But you want a really good overview, that's the one for you. And uh, it's the book I wanted to write but ended up not writing because Basevich beat me to it and he's better than me anyway on all this stuff. So, uh, America's War for the Greater Middle East by Andrew Basevich. Uh, let me know what you think about that. Okay, and then the last point, I'm already over an hour here. The last point, guys, is um, a question I got from a guy whose friend is a right-winger who says, look, the war is against radical Islam, and the reason we're not winning is because we're not taking the fight to them. If you're going to take the fight to terrible, radical, totalitarian ideology like this, you got to go ahead and unleash the Navy, unleash the infantry, unleash the Air Force, and go ahead and start the fight. Instead, we got all this, you know, stupid nation building and counterinsurgency and all this lovey-dovey stuff. It's time to bring out the big guns. And that, to me, is just a tragedy that that's the way people think, but I know it is, and I have an even worse one. I feel bad for Tattletale and Honor, but it's such a great example. I was over at a friend's house, an uh, old friend of mine, and there was his mom, who is now an old lady because we live in the future, and she used to be a young lady, and now she's an old lady. And we were talking, and this was after the Paris attack. I've told you all this before. This was after the Paris attack or Brussels or one of those. I think one of the Paris ones. And she said, I guess we just have to nuke them all and kill them all. You know, we've tried everything else. We fought them as hard as we can, and it's not working. They keep attacking us. We told them, if you keep attacking us, we'll keep killing you, and then they keep attacking us. So, I mean, at this point, who wants to go on like this? It's been a decade and a half. I guess we just have to kill them all. This nice little old lady said to me. And the thing is, one is, you know, 
who even wants to get started on the commentary of the unreality of foreign humans not quite being human just because they're far away from here. Just because they're too far to hear them scream when their kids die. You know, uh, too far to smell their burning bodies. I mean, you are inhaling that stuff, parts per million and all of that, you know. But if you can't identify the smell of their burning and rotting corpses, then, uh, yeah, well, whatever. Who cares? Women, little babies, grandparents, military-aged males. Just drop thermonuclear bombs on all their cities till they're all dead, and then it'll be great. Then humanity can go on without Muslims, and things will be fine after that. And this is the way regular people think. And the reason why is because nobody ever explained to them that, no, this is all America's fault. America started this war. And the only reason we're at war with, or the only reason Muslims are at war with us is because we are at war with them. If we'd been at war with India for the last 25 years, we'd be saying, oh, boo-hoo, radical Hinduism. And there is radical Hinduism in the world. Lord knows they kill people. But if we'd been bombing India, you know, propping up dictators and dividing up their land and promoting this minority over that majority and that majority over this minority that used to rule them for such a long time and is just waiting for some payback, and we were to do all these things, then you'd know that they would spin it all as Hinduism is our problem, Hindu extremism. Because you don't know anything about Hinduism, right? So you'll let them tell you anything. Well, what they do is they worship Shiva, the destroyer. And they'll stop at nothing to get us all. They hate our freedom. They hate our Christianity. They hate the fact that we're independent from their Indian Hindu caliphate. And every time an Indian does anything violent, well, a Hindu one anyway, um, there are a hell of a lot of Muslims in India too. But anytime a Hindu does anything, Hinduism is why they do it. Now, I know that you're a Christian. And yet you still have 10 million different motives for all the things that you do in your life that have nothing to do with Christianity, right? But when a Muslim does something, or in this case, a Hindu does something, well, then we all know, ipso facto, by definition, don't need to think about it any harder than that. The name of their religion is the cause of their behavior, period. That's it. And even though for the last 25 years, everybody knows that George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama have been slaughtering Indians endlessly. They're still going to say no Hinduism is why they resist. Because that's what TV tells you to think. That's what right wing media tells you to think. And apparently you people, you have to be told what to think by somebody. You can't figure it out yourself. Like, maybe. What if we just took George H.W. Bush and then we let the people of Iraq all tear him apart and then say, okay, are we cool now? Like, you know, without weapons, just by hand. And said, look, does that make up for it? This is the guy that started this mess. This is the guy that turned Osama bin Laden from our friend into our enemy. He used to work for Bush's father and Ronald Reagan, of course, you know. This is the guy... Like Bill Hicks said, go ahead and kick his head down the road like a soccer ball and then we can call truce on all the rest of this. Instead, every time, look, a Muslim crashed a car into a thing. It's because Islam made him do it. My God, that's so stupid. The only connection there is shared identity. That's it. 
America's at war with Muslims. Muslims fight. Just like Muslims uh, kill 3,000 New Yorkers and Connecticutians. And then you have guys, you know, from Utah who go join the service to go and fight for them. Shared identity. We're all Americans. We're fighting for our country. We're fighting for our people. Right? Look at how amped up Americans will get to fight for other people's people. Oh, we got to go save the babies. Look, there was a gas attack against some Syrians. Well, if Americans will go to war to fight in solidarity with Syrians, then why wouldn't you think that that's why Al-Qaeda fights too? In solidarity with people who are the victims of violence. It doesn't make them any more moral than it makes Donald Trump. It just means that that's what they're fighting about. Anybody who targets civilians and yet a healthy dose of allowance of collateral damage here and there counts as targeting civilians is immoral and wrong. Our side and theirs. And so, your buddy with the, hey, we're up against Nazism, we're up against communism, we must go to war, the West against all of Islam. His whole stupid thing is based off a big, fake, false premise. Okay? The fact of the matter is there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, a seventh or more of the population of the world. And if they were all at war against everybody else who wasn't them, there would be a serious-ass world war blazing on all continents right now, and there's not. Your city would be completely full of arson fires this minute. If you live in any major city in America, you're surrounded by Muslims. They're everywhere. But guess what? Their only conspiracy is to raise their kids and go to work, just like you, stupid. If they were at war with you, you would have noticed. They're not. They're here for the same reason you're here, presumably, so that you can be free and mind your own business. Be respected in your independence and respect others in theirs. Ever heard of that? This whole thing is just nonsense. It's a lie that Islam is why they fight. In fact, there's a great new article on consortiumnews.com today by J.P. Sotilli about this at all. The only thing that's Islamist about all this is that Islamism is the organizing principle of resistance. Well, you know, they tried nationalism and America smashed that. And they tried socialism and America smashed that. And they tried Baathism and America smashed that. And then they occupied Saudi Arabia and America's pet Islamist terrorists got pissed off and turned on us. And hey, there's a great place for me to close. Did you see the Lindsey Graham interview with Tucker Carlson? Tucker Carlson didn't even bring up blowback at all. Lindsey Graham's guilty conscience was just puking all over the place in all different directions. He's just upset. And he blurts out that we were attacked on 9-11 even though we didn't have troops in Afghanistan. Which is the weakest, silliest Straw man argument I've ever heard about the 9-11 attack in my life, I think. Of course, no one ever said that an American troop presence in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, was the motivation for the attack. It was a bunch of Saudis hiding in Afghanistan 
who were doing it because of American troops in Saudi who were being used to slaughter Iraqis from Saudi. That's what they complained about. And yeah, you're damn right. America started putting troops in their combat forces on the ground in August of 1990. In fact, they had them before that. But I'm just saying in preparation for the first Gulf War. So Lindsey Graham might as well have said, Horton is right, I resign. And Carlson didn't even bring it up. Tucker Carlson didn't even bring it up. Lindsey Graham just brought it up himself, blowback. And then tried to deny it with the, with the silliest straw man ever. And all he was really doing was conceding the point. Because he knows good and well that America did have combat forces all throughout the Persian Gulf. Even dating back to the Cold War. So, there. And you guys may be able to hear my stomach growling, which means this is finally over and I'm going to get something to eat. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, sign up for the podcast feed for this at scotthorton.org slash show for the Q&A stuff. Uh, send me your questions at hashtag SHSQA. Scott Horton Show questions, answers, get it? Hashtag SHSQA or just email me, scott at scotthorton.org. If you sent me a question and I didn't get to it, I'm sorry, man. There's a bunch and I kind of got lost, but I hope I covered it all for you. Um, check out all the interviews at libertarianinstitute.com slash scotthortonshow and scotthorton.org slash interviews. Again, 4,400-something interviews going back right exactly 14 years now at scotthorton.org for you guys. Oh, and you know what? Here's one other thing. Um, I've got a lot of really good interviews in the last week or two. So I hope that you guys will go and check that out if you haven't heard them. I got a great one from a military police officer who invested uh, McMaster for war crimes. I've got uh, Jeffrey Carr, the computer security expert, smacking down accusations about the Russian hack. I've got Phil Giraldi casting doubt on the Assad poison gas narrative. I've got Patrick Osgood from Iraq Oil Report, who, man, that was a great one. And I'm thinking of a bunch more questions for him right now, uh, just saying his name. Uh, so that was a really good one about Iraq War Three, And then Robert David English wrote, one, you know, every once in a while they'll let somebody write something good in foreign affairs. And boy, was this a good one about America's relationship with Russia. So um, there's Tom Woods and other good ones too. But uh, those are the ones I'm most proud of from the last week or two or whatever it is. So if you guys want to go and check that out, I think you'll learn a lot. And so there, now I'm done. Thanks very much. Oh, and for God's sake, man, patronize my sponsors. <laughs>